Thanks for joining us for the Fight for Your Marriage podcast with Charlene Steinkamp. This is a place where you can find hope for your marriage through Jesus Christ. Are you a fan or follower? Are you all in and fully committed to Christ, to whatever that requires, whatever he asks of you, wherever it's going to take you? Pastor Kyle Eidelman said, a follower gives Jesus the master key to their life. He doesn't just want to make changes. He wants to turn our lives upside down. You feel like your life has been turned upside down maybe? Jesus won't settle for a relationship with you where you get some small box of your life-labeled religion. He wants you to love him the same way that he loves you, and that's with all your heart. A fan is flippant. A fan comes and goes. A follower is fully committed regardless of the circumstances. Some of you might be sports fans, and when our team is doing great, like the Dolphins do great, we're on board or when they do badly, we might not be on board. That's a fan or a follower, the truly committed. Are you all in? Turn with me to the book of Joel, and we're gonna spend some time there. And in Joel, we find um, Joel speaking to the people of Judah. In fact, he's not just speaking to them, he's almost begging them. He's begging them um, and warning them of God's impending wrath, and he's begging them to turn their hearts back to God. A plague of locusts have come, the bugs that we were going to talk about, and they've eaten the crops. And they didn't just eat the crops, but they've destroyed the crops. It was as if there was nothing left, as if there was no hope. So Joel chapter 1, we'll start in verse 2. Hear this, you elders. Listen, all who live in the land. Has anything like this ever happened in your days or in the days of your forefathers? Tell it to your children and let your children tell it to their children and their children to the next generation. What the locust swarm has left, the great locust have eaten. What the great locust have left, the young locust have eaten. What the young locust have left, other locusts have eaten. Wake up, you drunkards, and weep. Wail, all you drinkers of wine. Wail because of the new wine, for it has been snatched from your lips. A nation has invaded my land, powerful and without number. It has the teeth of a lion and the fangs of a lioness. It has laid waste my vines and ruined my fig trees. It has stripped off their bark and thrown it away, leaving their branches white. There's nothing left. I mean, the locusts have eaten it off, eaten it all. In verse, um, verse 4, it says, The great locusts have eaten, and then the young locusts came and ate more. And the young locusts left, and other locusts came. Like, it just kept going and going and going. Locusts, um, have you ever seen a locust, anybody? I'm going to show you a picture of a locust. A locust looks very gross by itself, but in a swarm, they fly low to the ground, and they hover together. And they get so massive that if they fly in front of the sun, they can block the sun. They cause such great destruction Destruction that seemed beyond repair. And your marriage may feel that way. It may feel like 
it's too far gone. There's too much. There's no hope. The destruction's too great. You might feel like this boy with a broom swatting off the enemy, which feels like it's not going to do any good. You need to decide if you're all in or if we're going to be tossed with everything that happens, like the waves. All in means no turning back. It means you're sold out to Christ and to his will and to whatever happens. You fully trust him for your future. And some may say, well, you don't know my situation, or you don't know what I'm facing. You don't know what I've been through. I don't know what exactly you've been through, but I do know this, that if your situation is beyond the scope of what God can handle, then he has stopped being God. And I know that he has not stopped being God. So whatever your situation is or whatever your mountain is, is not too great for our God because he is still God and he is still on the throne and he is still able. So how do you get all in? How do you sell out to Jesus? Well, in Joel chapter 2, verse 12, he tells us, Even now, declares the Lord, return to me with all your heart, not just part of it, all your heart, with fasting and weeping and mourning. Rend your heart and not your garments. Return to the Lord your God, for he is gracious and compassionate, slow to anger and abounding in love, and he relents from sending calamity. All your heart, that's all in. Verse 13 says to rend your heart and not your garments. And the word rend, do you know what that means? It's like tearing your clothing, like in anguish. Like you're so in anguish that you tear your clothes. And God's saying, rend your heart, not your garments. He doesn't want our outward rituals. He wants our heart and he wants us fully committed to him. The steps in verse 12 are given to us. Return to me with all your heart, with fasting and weeping and mourning. He tells us there. Recently, our pastor told us a story about a little girl, and she went to the dime store with her mom, and she bought a strand of pearls. Obviously, they were fake because they were from the dime store, but they were her treasured item. And she wore these pearls day after day. She would only take them off to go to the take a bath. And every night when her dad would tuck her in, he would say, may I have your pearls? And she would say, no, these are mine, but you can have my Barbie. And the dad would say, that's okay. Good night, and give her a kiss and tuck her in. This went on every night. No, daddy, but you can have my tea set. No, daddy, but you can have this toy or that toy. And every night, she rejected his request for those pearls. Every night the conversation was repeated and the dad never got the answer he wanted. Finally, one day the little girl came to the dad and she held out her hand and she handed him the pearls. And she said, here you go, dad, you can have these. And the dad reached in his pocket, pulled out a blue velvet box, and in there was a strand of beautiful, genuine pearls. And he said, here, this is what I have for you. He had them all along, but he was waiting for her to give up the dime store junk that she had, that she was holding on to so tightly. And how often do we do that? 
And how often do our earthly mother and father and siblings and husband or wife want to give us something better, but we're holding on to what we think we want? God wants us to give up the junk in our lives so that he can give us the treasure that he has for us. Are we holding on to dime store items when he has something better? When we're all in, we give the Lord our full obedience. When my mom divorced my dad, her dime store treasure was her freedom and her happiness. She pursued that divorce. She was told by her friends and by pastors and by people at church, you have biblical grounds. He'll never change. You should be happy. You deserve to be happy. Have you heard any of those statements from well-meaning people? When she divorced him, she realized that she wasn't happy, and she realized that she had traded something that she didn't intend to trade. She realized that what she wanted was the blue velvet bag with the genuine item that Jesus had for her, and that was her marriage. Now, did she want to wait almost three years to have that? No, she wanted it immediately. That day that she went to the altar and committed her life and repented of what she had done in her marriage and realized that, oh, it wasn't just him, I I was at fault as well. She wanted him to come home that day, but that's not what God's best was for their situation. If she would have pushed the timing and not waited on him, None of us would probably be in this room tonight. She waited for that perfect treasure that God had for her. His way is always best because he is the king of kings. And when we try to push our will and our way on him, then we are dethroning him and saying, I actually know better than you, God. I know that this is what you think, but I think I have a better idea. Being all in is telling God that I know that you know what's best for my life. Is God rejoicing that your spouse moved out or that he's abandoned your children or that he's had an affair or she's left and moved in with somebody else? No, but have you seen God bring about change in your life since this has started? How many of you have had a change in your spiritual walk since you've been through this? It's almost every hand in the room. If you would not have gone through this, where would you be spiritually today? Some of us start by vowing to lose weight or reduce my cholesterol or stop drinking soda or whatever habit we want to get rid of. By the third or fourth day, we're falling back into our old habits. And we make an appointment and we go to the doctor and find out that our test results are off the charts and not in a good way. And we're suddenly motivated. We found the motivation we need to make the change and to be all in to our health or to that habit that we need to stop. This is how we can be with our relationship with Jesus so often. We just coast until there's a crisis, and then we want to get all in. And we just kind of go along. We might go to church, tithe, volunteer in a ministry even, but we're not really sold out with all of our heart to what he wants from us. But he wants us all in. He doesn't just want part of us, and he doesn't just want those actions that we're doing to try to please him. 
In Beth Moore's book, Audacious, she says, nothing Jesus will ever woo us to lay down on his behalf is worth what we'd miss if we didn't. If he wants your hands free, he has something for you to put in them. If he wants your feet loose, he has somewhere to plant them. If he wants your mouth shut, zip your lips, right? He has a new set of words to put in it. He's not trying to cheat you or to trick you. He's not placing bets on you or playing games with you. He does not dispense grace with an eyedropper. He drenches us with it. He does not offer bare existence. He extends life abounding in blessing and power and passion and purpose. And if people told you that God was stingy, they don't know their Bible. Right now, God may be asking you to lay down your will and your timing for this season. He wants you to trust him, and he wants to show you what he can accomplish when you give it to him and when you go all in. And this relationship is the most important thing, far more important than this relationship with your husband, with your wife, with your brother, sister, whoever that person is. This is the priority. Later in Joel, we read that God restored the crops. And if you've not read through the book of Joel recently, I would encourage you to read it. But Joel 2, verse 19, the Lord will reply to them, I'm sending you new grain and new wine and new oil, enough to satisfy you fully. Never again will I make you an object of scorn to the nations. Verse 21, be not afraid, O land, be glad and rejoice. Surely the Lord has done great things. Verse 23, be glad, O people of Zion. Rejoice in the Lord your God, for he has given you his autumn rains and his righteousness. He sends you abundant showers, both autumn and spring rains as before. The threshing floors will be filled with grain. The vats will overflow with the new wine and oil. I will repay you for the years the locusts have eaten, the great locust and the young locust, the other locust and the locust swarm, my great army that I sent among you. You will have plenty to eat until you are full, and you will praise the name of your Lord God, who has now worked wonders for you. Never again will my people be shamed. It looked hopeless. They had destroyed the land, but God had something better, and he rebuilt what was dead and what was hopeless, and that's what he wants to do for you. Are you ready to be all in, or are you still trying to hold on to things? and to see what you can do or how you can twist what God wants. This morning when I opened my devotional reading, it was Joshua 6, and it went along perfect with what we were talking about tonight. So turn to Joshua, and we're going to read a good portion of this chapter. Joshua 6. And this is when Jericho, the fall of Jericho happened. Jericho was a city that was protected by walls, and not just walls like we see here, but walls that were up to 25 feet high, and some say the walls were 20 feet in thickness. I can't even in my mind imagine that, a wall that is that insurmountable, because that seems like something you can't even get over. Soldiers would stand on top of the 25 feet of wall so that they could protect it, and they could have a view for miles of the city in front of them. The Israelites had been wandering in the wilderness for 40 years because of their disobedience, 
and they refused to obey God and conquer Canaan. And so now there was a new generation in, and that new generation was ready to obey, so they set out for the city, and Jericho was the first city to fall. So let's read in Jericho um, 6, and we'll start in verse 1. Now Jericho was tightly shut up because of the Israelites. No one went out and no one came in. Then the Lord said to Joshua, See, I have delivered Jericho into your hands, among with its king, along with its kings and its fighting men. March around the city once with all the armed men, and do this for six days. Have seven priests carry trumpets of ram's horns in front of an ark. On the seventh day, march around the city seven times with the priests blowing trumpets. When you hear them sound a long blast on the trumpets, have all the people give a loud shout, then the wall of the city will collapse and the people will go up, every man straight in. Wouldn't you love it if God would just write it out for you like that? Like, how simple would that be? I just need you to do this. But you know what we would do? We would say, Lord, that's ridiculous. I'm not doing that. But I think it would be nice. So Joshua, son of Nun, called the priest and said to them, Take up the Ark of the Covenant and the Lord and have seven priests carry trumpets in front of it. Verse 7, And he ordered the people, Advance, march around the city with the armed guard going ahead of the Ark of the Lord. When Joshua had spoken to the seven priests carrying the seven trumpets before the Lord, went forward blowing their trumpets, and the Ark of the Lord's Covenant followed them. The armed guard marched ahead of the priest who blew the trumpet, and the rear guard followed the ark. All this time the trumpets were sounding. But Joshua had commanded the people, do not give a war cry, do not raise your voices, do not say a word until the day I tell you to shout, then shout. So he had the ark of the Lord carried around the city, circling at once. Then the people returned to camp and spent the night there. Joshua got up early the next morning, and the priest took up the ark of the Lord. The seven priests carrying the seven trumpets went forward, marching before the ark of the Lord and blowing the trumpets. The armed men went ahead of them, and the rear guard followed the ark of the Lord while the trumpet kept sounding. So on the second day, they marched around the city once and returned to the camp, and they did this for six days. Verse 15. On the seventh day, they got up at daybreak and marched around the city seven times in the same manner, except on that day, they circled the city seven times. The seventh time around, when the priests sounded the trumpet blast, Joshua commanded the people, shout, for the Lord has given you the city. This city and all that is in it are to be devoted to the Lord. Only Rahab the prostitute and all who are with her in her house shall be spared because she hid the spies we sent. Let's jump to verse 20. When the trumpet sounded, the people shouted. And at the sound of the trumpet, when the people gave a loud shout, the wall collapsed. So every man charged straight in, and they took the city. That wall, that 25-foot, 20-foot-wide wall collapsed when they shouted. If you go back to verse five and, and, uh, chapter 5 and verse 14... We see Joshua before this started, and he asks at the end of that verse, he fell face down in reverence to God, and he says, what message does my Lord have for my servant? We need to be inquiring of the Lord. We need to fall on our face before him, and we need to say, what do you have for me? What message do you have for me? What city do you want me to march around? What do you want from me, God? And if we're never being still before him, to listen to him, 
then we're never going to hear from him because going to church is great and doing your Bible studies and coming here and things like that, but it's not enough. You have to be all in and have time with the Lord alone so that he can speak to you and that you can hear from him. When you're all in, you ask God for his message. Do you remember those toys? They were when I was a child, so like 70s. And it was like a red and a blue circle. And it was almost like a Tupperware type plastic thing. And it had little shapes all on the side. And you would take the shapes out and then you would put them in and match them up. It was like a little puzzle thing. And children would always try to put like the little cross in the circle spot. And it would never fit because it would go in the cross spot. That's what we do so often in our relationship with God. We go to God and we say, Lord, I need X, Y, and Z. But I've got a way that this will work. So can you please bless my plans and my idea and the way I want this to happen? Can you please change this person and to do this? And can you make this happen tomorrow? Instead of just saying, Lord, what do you want? We try to contort that and to try to make God twist his will to be ours. And that's not what we should do. When we're all in, we're willing to listen to God. It requires obedience, full obedience. So do you trust God? Do you trust who he is and what he has to say to you? And when you're really serving and you have a relationship with him and you're all in and you're walking around a city or you're praying for a spouse, those people that marched around that city did not see a crack in that wall. They were marching, and I'm sure it felt like this is ridiculous. What are we doing? The wall has not even started to have a crack. And that's the way it may seem in your situation right now. It may seem like I'm praying, and I'm not seeing anything. I'm not seeing a change in this relationship. I'm not hearing from God. I don't, ha I don't even see a crack in what's happening. But all at once, just like the wall fell in Jericho, God can bring that down all at once. He can do that when we're standing for a marriage that seems hopeless. Most of you know my parents' testimony. When my parents were divorced, my dad wanted nothing to do with talking about restoration. He said all the cliche things that you've probably heard before. I'm in love with somebody else. I don't want to come back. I'm happy. You should move on. Everything he said was, would tell my mom, this is hopeless. And her friends and her church and her pastor were saying the same thing. But the day that they were remarried was the day that my dad drove an hour and a half down here from Fort Pierce, Florida, showed up at her office window and tapped on her window, and she was shocked to see him there and said, can I take you to lunch? Well, she dropped everything and went to lunch with him, as most of you probably would. And at that restaurant that day, my dad was in a battle with God. He was there because he felt the wooing of the Holy Spirit, not because he wanted to make things right with my mom. And it was before cell phones, as my mom will tell you, so she couldn't quick text somebody to pray because Bob just picked me up for lunch. She was alone with the Lord to deal with this. And you know what? That was probably the best thing. And as my mom or my dad left to go to the restroom and my mom sat there and he immediately said, call the pastor and see if we can get married this afternoon. And at the beginning of that lunch, he said, just go get a marriage license, stick it in your Bible, and stop praying for me because this is enough. Like, just put it in your Bible, have it, and move on with life. 
And she wouldn't agree to that because that's not what she wanted. She was all in, whether it was going to happen in three years or 33 years or 83 years. She was all in. And by the end of that lunch, he had changed his mind. Now, was he all in? Let me tell you the truth. Let me just warn you. When your restoration happens, there may not be butterflies and fireworks on day one, two, three, or ten. When he came home that night, we went to um, a restaurant for dinner. It was right steak and ale. It used to be right here around the corner. We went with my grandparents, and we had a celebration dinner, and we went back to the house, and my dad sat on the edge of the bed, and he said, what have I done? Because he, he just was acting out of his own will that afternoon. And he had to call this other woman and tell this other woman who he was very close to being engaged to, I won't be coming back because I married Charlene this afternoon. I mean, that wasn't an easy call to make. <laughs> that was not an easy call to make. But you know what? She trusted the process because she had been all in. And she was so in tune with her king of kings that it didn't scare her when he sat there and said, what did I just do? It didn't scare her when he said, I have to call this other person, or I need to go pick up my clothes, or I need to go see her to do this, because this is the relationship that she was worried about, not this one. And when you're so focused on God that this doesn't matter, I'm capable of doing that. You're capable of doing that. Without God and without his redeeming power in our life, we are that person that we are capable of all of that. And that may be what you're seeing in your husband or in your wife right now. But with God, when we have our relationship right this way, then all of this will fall into place because he will make that happen in his perfect time. Guess what? He has a vantage point that we don't have. He has a vantage point that we can't see. And some of the things that our family's gone through, I have thought to myself, it's so not fair. I'm kind of a whiner. I'm just going to put it out there. I'm a whiner. We... And I would say to God, why would this happen? Or why would that happen? Or for the longest time, I didn't understand why so many bad things would happen to my mom. I remember being a teenager thinking her brother died when she was young. Her mom died when she was young. Her father died shortly after that. Like, why has this lovely woman gone through so much hardship? But you know what? It was because through those things that she has been through in her life, God used that to bring about his glory, to bring about change in Charlene Steinkamp, to bring about change in the Steinkamp family. And that may be what God's asking you to do today is to get all in and to stop looking at what you don't have, to stop looking at what's not happening, to stop complaining about the wall that is happening around you that's 20 feet wide that doesn't look like it's cracking. But when you're all in, then that wall comes down and you know it happened from God. It wasn't because of something that you contorted and twisted to happen. It was from God. Yesterday, our pastor showed a clip of a video and it, when he showed it, I was like, this sums up perfectly what we need to talk about tonight. And it's a um, Baptist preacher, Dr. S.M. Lockridge. He's been gone now for almost 20 years, but a clip from this sermon reminds us why we need to be all in. It's because of who our King of Kings is. So take a look at this.
The Bible says, my king is a king of the Jews. He's a king of Israel. He's a king of righteousness. He's a king of the ages. He's a king of heaven. He's a king of glory. He's a king of kings. And he's the Lord of lords. That's my king. I wonder, do you know him? My king is a sovereign king. No means of measure can define his limitless love. He's enduringly strong. He's entirely sincere. He's eternally steadfast. He's immortally graceful. He's imperially powerful. He's impartially merciful. Do you know him? He's the greatest phenomenon that has ever crossed the horizon of this world. He's God's son. He's a sinner's savior. He's the centerpiece of civilization. He's unparalleled. He's unprecedented. He is the loftiest idea in literature. He's the highest personality in philosophy. He's the fundamental doctrine of true theology. He's the only one qualified to be an all-sufficient savior. I wonder if you know him today. He supplies strength for the weak. He's available for the tempted and the tried. He sympathizes and he saves. He strengthens and sustains. He guards and he guides. He heals the sick. He cleans the lepers. He forgives sinners. He discharges debtors. He delivers the captives. He defends the feeble. He blesses the young. He serves the unfortunate. He regards the age. He rewards the diligent. And he beautifies the meek. I wonder if you know him. He's the key to knowledge. He's the wellspring of wisdom. He's the doorway of deliverance. He's the pathway of peace. He's the roadway of righteousness. He's the highway of holiness. He's the gateway of glory. Do you know him? Well, his life is matchless. His goodness is limitless. His mercy is everlasting. His love never changes. His word is enough. His grace is sufficient. His reign is righteous. And his yoke is easy. And his burden is light. I wish I could describe him for you. He's indescribable. He's incomprehensible. He's invincible. He's irresistible. Well, you can't get him out of your mind. You can't, you can't get him off of your head. You can't outlive him, and you can't live without him. Well, the Pharisees couldn't stand him, but they found out they couldn't stop him. Pilate couldn't find any fault in him. Herod couldn't kill him. Death couldn't handle him, and the grave couldn't hold him. Yeah! I don't care what you're going through. That is my king. And you need to decide if you're all in. I don't want to be a fan. I don't want to be a fan of Jesus. I don't want to just cheer for him when it's convenient for me and do what Jesus asks from, from me when it's convenient. I want to be all in. I want to be a follower. And whatever he wants from me, he will equip me to do it. Whatever he wants from you, he will give you the grace to do it. He will give you what you need to do it. I don't know how it's going to happen. I don't know how it's going to work out. I don't know if it's going to take a day, a month, or 10 years. 
But you know what? If it takes 10 years, then it was not 10 years wasted because my king knows what's best for you. He knows what's best for me. And we will miss the boat if we waste this opportunity, if we waste what you're going through, if we waste the hardship. You guys might be one of those people that people look at you and say, how do they go through all of this? How do they endure this hardship or all of the things that have happened to them? We can do that because my king has a better way than I do. And I don't want to twist the toy to fit his will into the toy my way. I want his way. And I want him to give me the grace to be patient and to wait. And he will do that. So right now, your husband or your wife might be gone. Your husband or wife might be sleeping on a couch in another room. Or they might be sleeping in the bed beside you. But don't waste this opportunity. Ask God what he's going to do right now through this. And get all in, because you will not waste that opportunity. Let's pray. God, I thank you for tonight. God, I thank you for being the King of Kings. God, you died a painful, horrid death for us, and we didn't deserve it. Lord, I pray that you would just help us all to be all in. God, help us to focus on you and to not look at the walls around us, to not look at what the locusts have eaten and what's barren, and to say, Lord, how can you ever redeem this? God, we know you can redeem it. You are the king of kings. You rose from the grave, Lord. I pray that you would give each of us faith in this room to be able to handle the things that come. But God, for some, it may be more hardship and more hurt and more trials. And Lord, instead of facing those and saying, God, why? Why are you allowing this? Lord, help us to do it with grace. Grace that can only come from you. Lord, I pray that we would all just commit to be all in in our relationship with you, Lord. I pray that we would take our time with you in the Bible and that we would spend more time in prayer and even praying for our spouse. So many people are standing for restoration and they don't pray for their spouse. God, help us to become men and women of prayer. And Lord, we don't understand why these things happen, but I know that almost every person in this room has probably been questioned by well-meaning friends and family members saying, why are you doing that? God, let us all be a witness for what you can do for the impossible. And Lord, we know that you can be glorified through this. And we thank you for using us as the vessel to do that, God. I thank you for tonight. I thank you for each man and woman here. And I pray that you would just continue to bless our time together as we fellowship. In your name, amen. If we can help you in any way, we invite you to visit the website of Rejoice Marriage Ministries at www.rejoiceministries.org. Thanks for joining us today as we proclaim that God heals hurting marriages.